Well, you all know the saying that pride comes before the fall. That's something you can learn the easy way or the hard way. And King Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible, by way of example, he's someone who learned the hard way. Remember, remember one night the king had a dream. This massive statue had a head of gold, a chest of silver, thighs of bronze, legs of iron. And what did it all mean? Well, God gave Daniel the interpretation. This was a picture of the coming kings of the kingdoms of the earth and their greatness. And first on the list were the Babylonians. So Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar the king, you are the head of gold. This, of course, meant the Babylonians were great, but also meant they weren't going to last much longer. And instead of this humbling the king, all he heard was, you're the head of gold. You're the greatest. And so what's the very next thing he did as king? He had a 90-foot tall statue of gold built of himself. And then he made everyone bow down to it and worship him. I mean, talk about pride. Instead of giving glory to God, who gave him everything, he took it for himself. And so God decided some humbling was in order. This is recorded in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30. One night the king was by himself reflecting on his own greatness, and he said this, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? And as he reflected on his own greatness, God spoke to him from heaven and basically said, Your, your time is up. That very night, God would drive him from mankind, take away his power, take away his glory, his riches, his intellect. He was driven from the earth and made like a beast in the field. He's like a madman living in the woods. And God did this, he said, so that the king might recognize that the Most High is the ruler over earth, and he bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in other words, Nebuchadnezzar needed to eat some humble pie. The king did not possess glory and honor and power. God did. And God chose to give some to the king, according to his plan, but apart from God, the king was nothing. He needed to recognize this and give glory to God from whom all blessings flow. After the appointed time, the king learned his lesson, and surprisingly, God restored him to his kingship. He restored him to even greater glory, only this time the king did not take the praise for himself. He reflected it and turned it back to God. Nebuchadnezzar realized God is the real king, his is the real kingdom, and to him belongs the praise. So he concludes Daniel chapter 4 by the king now. After all this, King Nebuchadnezzar says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are true and his ways are just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. God is opposed to the proud. What's the big deal, though? Why, why is God opposed to the proud? Why is pride such a problem? You ever think about that? Pride is a high view of your own self. It's an exalted view of yourself, your abilities, your greatness, your importance, and you want others to have a high view of you as well. You believe you deserve the recognition and the claim and the praise because of your greatness. But there are two major pitfalls to pride, which make it the chief sin. First, pride dishonors God. When you have an elevated view of yourself and you seek your own praise, who is not getting the praise? God. And who actually is the one who deserves that praise? God. You see, when God is brought into the equation, all such pride in self is misplaced because apart from God, what are you? You're nothing who gave you life and breath. 
who gave you a mind, an intellect, ability, opportunity, skills. Every good thing you have comes from God according to His purposes. But pride is where you take credit for all that you have apart from God. You are robbing God of His rightful praise. And so pride dishonors God. And secondly, pride prevents salvation. Pride prevents salvation. You know the phrase, again, pride comes before the fall. And that's very fitting because we're all prideful. We're all fallen. But if pride comes before the fall, then humility comes before the rescue. What is the means of our salvation? It's not us. It's not our works, our greatness, our efforts. The only thing we contribute is sin. And that just brings condemnation. There's nothing we can give to God to save ourselves. We're unworthy. But God has done something for us on our behalf. He sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross to pay the penalty for sin, to offer us freely forgiveness and eternal life based on faith. This is what He did for us to save us. Another reason He deserves the praise all the more. But to access this salvation, you have to have faith. You have to confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You follow Him. Life is not about you anymore. It's about following Him. And the problem with this is that the proud can and will never do this by definition. They're not going to humble themselves and and live for the Lord. They're they're living for themselves. They love self. They believe in self. They're having too much fun living as if they are God. Instead, it's only the broken and the humble who will cry out to God for help, for the mercy that they really need. They know that apart from God's mercy, they're lost. And this cry, Lord, I'm a sinner, save me, That's what God is looking for. Only the humble find it. And so as Scripture says, God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Pride, however, prevents salvation. So pride, it's a real problem. It's a huge sin. It keeps us from knowing God. It keeps us from honoring God. God knows this, though. And so sometimes God serves us. How? By humbling us by bringing us low. Like Nebuchadnezzar, sometimes God brings us low in life. Sometimes He humiliates us. Sometimes He takes away everything we're relying on so that the only thing we have left is Him. And it sounds kind of harsh, but for the proud, that's the best thing that can happen to them because it opens up the opportunity for them to acknowledge God and find salvation. And maybe you know someone like this who needs humbling. Or maybe this is you. Do you have an elevated view of yourself? Do you truly give God the glory for everything in life? Or perhaps do you need to be humble so that you recognize Him from whom all blessings flow? And we can agree on one thing, and that is Christ's disciples, they certainly needed to be humble. We're back in the Gospel of Mark this week, so you can open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Not long ago, we heard from Jesus this radical call to discipleship. He said, if you want to follow him, you must first, what? Deny self. Life, it's not about you anymore. It's about following the Lord. You live not for your will, but his will. But the disciples, they still weren't getting this. They weren't at that point. They, they certainly needed to learn some humility. And there's two ways to do that. 
How do you learn humility? Well, there's the school of wisdom, and there's the school of hard knocks. The school of wisdom, that's where you learn humility from others, from their teaching or from their experience. Of course, you could always enroll in the school of hard knocks. We're going to learn the hard way through humiliation. And Jesus, at this point in Mark's gospel, he's clearly headed to the cross. We're in the final stretch. Time is short. The disciples still have so much to learn, but they're not getting it. And we know how the story ends. They're not going to get it until, until the end. They're going to have to enroll in the school of hard knocks. They're not going to learn this any other way. It's just not going to happen for them. They will all be brought low to learn this lesson. However, this doesn't stop Jesus from first instructing them and teaching them on humility, even if they don't quite get it. And that's what we find in the passage we have before us today. This is the school of wisdom on humility as taught by Jesus. As we learn the end of Mark chapter 8, we found a high point in the revelation of the identity and the mission of Jesus. And now he, he's clearly on the path to the cross. And so that covers the first half of Mark's gospel. Now we're into the second half of Mark's gospel. And it, it's really all about the cross and the one week right before it. However, first we've got chapter 9 and chapter 10. Two more chapters. And what these are all about, Christ is trying to, on the way to the cross... He's trying to impart some final lessons on discipleship to his 12. That this is critical time now. What does it take to follow him? You must deny self, pick up your cross, and then follow him. In chapters 9 and 10, they're like a series of lessons on the way to the cross where Jesus is trying to explain what that's all about, what that means and looks like. And first up to bat is a lesson on true humility which is very much akin to denying self. And this is a lesson we still need to learn. The disciples, they're long gone, but we're around and and the standard remains. The only way to salvation is through Jesus, and the only way to Jesus is through a humble faith. So we too would do well to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from him this, this school of wisdom on humility, what it takes to be his disciple and what true humility looks like that must characterize all disciples. Otherwise, you might just be made to learn the hard way. And you don't want to learn the hard way. The text we have now is Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 41. And from it we find one lesson on humility taught in three different ways. That's it. One lesson on humility taught in three different ways. And first, we see humility taught by illustration. Humility taught by illustration. Look at verse 30. We'll read this as we go, starting in verse 30. It says, From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he, Jesus, did not want anyone to know about it. Start off with the transition. Jesus and the disciples are coming back from Caesarea Philippi up in the north. They're back in familiar territory, Galilee. They even get to Capernaum. That was his new home base, if you remember. But this, this is the last time. This right here, this marks the last time that Jesus will set foot in Galilee until after the resurrection. He, he's going to the cross. He's, he's done. He's moving on. And he has no more concern for the crowds in Galilee. He has taught them for years. They've seen so many miracles, but most of them have rejected. So he's done. He's moving on. All of his attention at this point is to be focused on the twelve. 
Because humanly speaking, the success of the church after him rests on their shoulders. They have so much to learn. They need some more instruction. So that's what we see. And so look at verse 31. It's time for some more instruction. Verse 31, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Now, if this all sounds familiar to you, it should, because Jesus has told them this before, and he's repeating himself like like any good teacher does, because repetition is the key to learning. And not long before this, just turn back to the end of Mark chapter 8, he was revealing to his disciples for the very first time his real mission, what he really came to do. It's not just to teach and to heal. Back in chapter 8, verse 31, right after Peter and the disciples confess him as the Christ, he drops the bombshell on them. Verse 31, he says, yeah, well, the Christ came. And what's he going to do? Verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after that, three days rise again. And this, of course, blew their mind. A suffering and dead Messiah? That They were not raised to believe that. That wasn't in any part of their tradition or religion growing up. It, it didn't compute. So much so that right after this, what does Peter do? He confesses him as Christ. Christ says, yeah, well, I've got to die. And so Peter rebukes Jesus. This is nonsense. This is silly talk. Jesus, what are you talking about? And you remember how Jesus responded to that. Verse 33. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. I mean, talk about getting put in your place. And being humble, Jesus silenced Peter's rebuke, but that didn't make the truth any easier to swallow for the disciples. The Messiah was still going to die. They still didn't understand that. And Jesus, in our passage, he tells them again, and he's going to tell them again and again. We're going to see this pop up many more times. But they still won't, they don't get it. Go back to chapter 9, look at verse 32. It says they didn't understand the statement, and they were afraid to ask him. When we read this, we, we think, what's so hard to understand? Jesus said he's going to die, and three days later he'll rise again. Okay, he's going he's to die, and then three days later he's going to come back to life. How is that hard to understand? But it, it's not like they were intellectually struggling with this truth. They were religiously or spiritually struggling with this truth. As Jews, they had no category in their mind for a dead Messiah. It, just, it did not make sense to them. They didn't know of a Messiah who would need resurrection, and in addition, Matthew, he tells us in his gospel that this news, it just made them sad. They, they grieved over the fact that Jesus had to die. Of course, if they understood the real significance of that death, they wouldn't grieve. They would rejoice, but they don't get it. And they're not going to get it until after the fact, until after the resurrection. And for right now, they're sad, they're confused, they're, they're too scared to ask. Because look at what happened to the last guy who tried to ask Jesus about these things. Peter got called Satan. So they're not going to talk to Jesus about this anymore. So this verse represents another warning and prediction of his coming death and resurrection, which we're going to see again in Mark. But for now, it just what I want to do here is, is I want to highlight in this verse the humility 
of Jesus. By way of illustration, his personal illustration. Understand this. Jesus did not die on the cross just to leave us an example. Some people believe that, that you ask them, hey, why did Jesus die on the cross? And they say, Jesus died just to give humanity an example of sacrifice and love. And that's the wrong answer. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. There is a real transaction. He was killed in our place. You need to get that real straight. But that doesn't mean he wasn't our example. I mean, he's the perfect Lord. He's our example in all things. He, of course, is our example. And certainly when it comes to the type of selfless humility that pleases the Lord. And Jesus showed that nowhere more than, than the cross. Keep your finger in Mark 9 and just turn, turn over real quick to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. If there's just one passage in Scripture that you just lock into your brain when it comes to humility, Philippians chapter 2. This is your go-to passage on humility. It's brief. It's so clear. We'll start in verses 3 three and 4. Just some, some very clear admonitions for us in regards to humility. And these are so great. Philippians 2, look at verse 3. Paul says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. This is just clear teaching against a puffed-up view of self where the world revolves around you. But you are not the center of the universe. Instead, true humility involves regarding others as more important than yourself. Now, I know, this sounds very un-American. Because culturally, we're, we're just conditioned to look out for number one. It's, it's all about us, the self. But in reality, the, the point is, look, you look out for yourself enough. How about you look out for others? You, you serve yourself enough as it is. How about you devote some energy to serving others? Because that's what humility looks like. The problem for many, though, is that they believe this attitude is beneath them. And they're not going to show up early to church to rake some leaves or do the dishes, take out the trash, set up some chairs. That's beneath them. Do you know how much they make an hour? That's servant work. It is. But such a lowly work was not beneath Jesus. He came as a servant, even a slave. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 5. Right after this call to hum- humility, verse 5 says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant or slave and being made in the likeness of men being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross this is precisely the example of humility depicted in our passage in mark in mark it's looking forward to it and philippians is looking backward at it but it's the same picture consider how jesus and humility served you. I mean, he existed in perfect glory and splendor, surrounded by the angels, singing him praises. No one was opposing him. He needed nothing. But out of his care and concern for you, he humbled himself, took on the form of a man, even, even a slave. 
He veiled his glory. He submitted himself to sinful men. Even let them kill him. And he did not deserve that. That, If there's anything beneath the Lord, it's that. That was beneath him. But he endured it. Why? For you. Do you know how humiliating that death was? Beaten, mocked, nailed to a cross, almost certainly naked. Called a criminal, killed with other criminals. It's degrading. Talk about not getting what you deserve. Talk about something beneath the glory of God. But he endured it because he was considering others more important than himself. Jesus accomplished that saving work on the cross. And to receive it, you must follow him and you must be humble. It says, with humility of mind, regard one another. It's more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. And have this attitude in yourself. And where, where do you look to find it? Christ Jesus. He leads the way in the humility that pleases God. We can flip back now to Mark chapter 9. And first, we, we find a lesson on humility taught by way of illustration. Jesus leaves behind the illustration of his life and death as the pinnacle of true humility before the Lord, which is all about serving others. And this idea of humility through serving others is pronounced next, where we find humility taught by instruction. First, a lesson of humility taught by illustration. Secondly now, humility taught by instruction. Let's keep reading. It's a long passage. Let's, Let's keep going. Verse 33. After this, they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he began to question them, what were you discussing on the way? So stop there. Jesus and the crew, they're back in Galilee. They're back in Capernaum. They're back in this house, which most likely we've seen many times. This is probably Peter's house. He lived in Capernaum. They were there a lot. But anyway, they get inside. They're all settled down. And Jesus, he's been saving a question this whole time for them. He says, hey, what, what were you guys talking about as we were walking home from Caesarea Philippi? What were you discussing on the way? The trip back from Caesarea Philippi was a long one. We're talking 30 miles. So they had plenty of time to talk. Jesus, the rabbi, would be walking out in front, of course. They would be following behind, talking among themselves. And this is a conversation, I'm sure, they were trying to keep among themselves. They didn't want Jesus to hear this, but he overheard. I'm not sure if he tuned into some supernatural hearing or if he just overheard, but he heard, and now they're busted. Look at verse 34. He says, what were you talking about? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Yeah, they're busted. They keep silent not because they're ignorant and they don't know what to say. They're silent because they know what to say. They know the right answer to the question. They're just ashamed because they had actually been talking about which one of them was the greatest. After all they've learned and seen, they're still concerned with this. Yes, and they will be several more times. This isn't the last time this is going to happen. But they have glory on the mind. It's like all the times Jesus tells them about his suffering and their suffering, which is to come. It's like they put their fingers in their ears. They don't want to hear it. But whenever he talks to them about glory, they, they, they start to perk up. Like, tell us about that. We'll, we'll listen to that. They've got glory on the mind, and they want to know who's going to have the most. 
He's going to be the greatest. We do this today with other people. We sit around. There's entire TV shows devoted to who's the best musician of all time, who's the best athlete of all time, the best actor. It's a little different, though, because when was the last time you sat down with a group of friends and you said, hey, so who among us here is the best? That's kind of awkward. We don't really go that far. Who in this table is the greatest? We don't take it that far. But for the Jews back then, that was actually very common. The Jews were very preoccupied with ranking themselves. Rabbinic writings reveal how they were very concerned with finding the seating order in paradise. They wanted to know who's going to sit closer to the throne of God in the kingdom. They were very concerned about that. What's the pecking order in heaven? They want to know who's the greatest in the kingdom. But Christ, how he responds to his disciples is very interesting. First, notice, he doesn't call them out on this in public. He waited until they were in the privacy of the home to call them out on this because he's not trying to to crush them. He's trying to teach them. Secondly, notice, he doesn't demean them for wanting glory. He never says their desire is wrong to be great. Instead, Jesus redefines what greatness really is before God and, and how you get that greatness. And how do you? get greatness before God. Verse 35. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. This is another one of those watershed statements on discipleship in the Bible. Jesus, we know he's a man of many paradoxes, right? He says, you want to save your life? And you gotta lose it. You wanna be first, then you've gotta be last. You wanna be the greatest, and you've gotta be a servant of all. But this is the key. This is showing us how God defines greatness. And you need to get this straight because this is upside down from the world. It seems like everyone wants to be first. It's almost like we're built in with this desire to be great, to be best. Nobody wants to be a nobody. We want our lives to count. We dream of glory. We want to get to the top. We want to be the best. And Jesus, though, he he never actually speaks against that desire. He never says that desire is necessarily wrong to desire greatness. But what is the world's strategy for getting to the top? You must fight and claw your way to the top. You've got to climb the ladder of success and, if need be, lie, cheat, and steal. If you have to, even step on other people. And hurt them to get to the top. It's the cutthroat way of the world. But what Jesus is saying, if you really want to be great in God's eyes, then be last. Be the servant of all. And I wonder if their response was like, are you you kidding me? Who wants to be a servant? How is that great? There's no greatness in that. The word for servant here is the same word for deacon in scripture, which literally just means someone who serves other people. But Jesus is saying, basically, you can learn more about greatness before God from a butler than from Donald Trump. That's what he's saying. The world thinks this humility is weakness. But humility is not weakness. Humility is power under self-control. That's humility. Jesus, he showed that. When he came, he had all the rights and privileges of God. He, he, had, he still had all power as God. He just withheld it and veiled it for our sake. It was power under self-control, and he did that to serve us. 
the pinnacle verse in Mark. I'll give it to you and we'll get to it soon. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the question you have to ask yourself is, are you too proud to serve? Are you too proud to be a servant of all? Not just your friends, your family, but servant of all. The call to discipleship that Jesus gives requires a true humility, and this is what it looks like. And you need to really examine yourself, because pride can easily sneak into even the church. Pastors and church leaders can fall prey to pride. There's a story of a church which got together and they gave their pastor a special pin And the pin read, the world's most humble pastor. But the day he wore it, they took it away from him. (laughs) It's pretty good, right? But in all seriousness, I think we know many churches, they they turn the pastor into a celebrity. And people, they want to show up and attend that church, not because Jesus is exalted there, but because of that cool pastor. The pastor's ego is fed. Soon his name is written in the boldest font on the marquee. If you ever see a church where the pastor's name is, is the boldest font, don't go to that church. It's a rule of thumb. And then there are some members. Pride can affect church members as well very easily. They will come. They will give lots of money. They will serve. Of course, sure. But they want some recognition. You better mention their name in the bulletin next week. You better name the building after them, or at least a pew, because of what they did and gave, Right? This is nothing other than pride and it erases whatever good you have done because in serving others, you're you're just still serving yourself. Instead, serve others selflessly, not for anyone's sake, but the Lord's. Certainly not your own. Jesus is instructing them on true humility. He's defining that humility to mean service. Selfless service of others. And that, that point is really iterated in the next two verses Let's keep going. Look at verse 36. He continues and he, he goes on and it says, Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. So they're still in this house. Naturally, children are present. Again, most likely this is Peter's house. We know Peter was married. Tradition says he had kids. There's a very good chance this was Peter's son. You don't know for sure. But either way, Jesus takes him, gives him a little hug, and then he sits him down and he uses him as an object lesson, as a living illustration on humility. What exactly does this child represent that Jesus is trying to get across? Well, back then, children, like servants, were regarded as nothing. They had a different perspective on children. They weren't all sentimental toward children like we are today. That's because, most likely, sadly, they had to live with the reality that a lot of kids didn't make it past the age of five. It was just a harsh reality. So children in that culture weren't really regarded as valuable until they were older. So what does this child represent that Jesus holds? The boy is used to represent those in life who are not great. These are all the people who, they have no accomplishments to their name. No fame, no fortune, no influence, no power, no status. They're weak, they're needy, they're dependent. Most notably, they've got nothing to offer. These are the lowest people.
people in society. Back then, that was kids and servants. And so from this child, two points Jesus makes. The first is that this is what it takes to be saved. This is what it takes to be saved. You don't find this from Mark. It's actually from Matthew 18, the parallel, where the disciples, they go on to ask Jesus, hey, so then who is the greatest in the kingdom? And remember how he responds. He takes the kid who's still right there, and he says, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And you've got to understand, he's not talking about literal children here. The, the lesson is not about kids. It's about God's kids, Christians, spiritual believers. And the first lesson is, what is true of physical children, that needs to be true of you if you are to be God's spiritual children. In other words, you've got to be like the child before God, humble, realizing you have nothing to offer, you don't have any power or prestige or merit to offer God. You, you have nothing like the child, like the servant. But this is precisely the humble realization that God requires before salvation. He's opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So the first object, object lesson that Jesus draws, if you want to be God's child, then be like the child. Humble, meek, lowly, dependent on God by faith. That is what he regards. But secondly, Jesus adds another object lesson from the child who's just sitting there. The child, he's representing Christians at this point, spiritual believers, God's spiritual children. And you know, the Lord is with his children. And so if you treat them poorly, you are treating the Lord poorly. But if you treat them well, if you serve them, if you receive them, then you're receiving the Lord Jesus, and even the one who sent him. And so the second lesson, which is for Mark, deals with how we treat others and serve others. If you're really humble and broken before God, you're not going to be stepping on others as you try and climb the ladder of greatness. But that's that's precisely, precisely what the disciples were just doing on the way there. Their mentality was that of the world. You've got to hammer other people down so that you stand the tallest. But instead, Jesus says, that's not the way. You've got to lift one another up. If you want to be greatest in the kingdom, it's by being the lowest and letting others stand on your shoulders. And you can see how this ties in with humility. They wanted to be great in the kingdom, and that's not a bad thing. But that doesn't come by stepping on others to get to the top. It comes by hoisting others up, helping them get closer to the Lord. And God calls that greatness. And that requires humility. How you treat other children of God is how you treat the Lord Jesus and he who sent him. So take this seriously. The disciples and you should be less focused on opposing one another or competing with one another, more focused on helping one another, serving one another, desiring to see others closer to the Lord in their walk. And this even extends to serving those who, like children, they can give you nothing in return. Because in the end, you're not really serving them, you're serving their Heavenly Father. And this is how He wants His children to live. Well, as if this isn't all enough, Jesus, He's going to drive this lesson on humility home, the last little part, verses 38 through 41. He's teaching them humility that must characterize all disciples. And we learn this first by 
illustration. Secondly, by instruction. And then lastly now, we see humility taught by correction. Humility taught by correction. Verse 38. After this, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. Now, it looks like John is changing the subject, but he's not. They're all still in this house. They're sitting around. Jesus is teaching. And he just hit them hard on some teaching on humility. And then maybe, just maybe, this pricked John's conscience. Because what he says here, it's like he's half questioning, but half confessing that they did something wrong. John tells Jesus about this incident, and we don't know anything about it other than this. It probably took place when Jesus sent out the twelve to preach in pairs, but we don't really know. At some point, the disciples, away from Jesus, encountered this guy. And he was there casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And it appears he was a true believer. It appears he was really empowered due to this work. But the disciples, they wanted to stop him. Why? They say, as John says, because he was not following us. He wasn't following us. They didn't like this guy because he wasn't part of their clique. He wasn't one of the special twelve. He wasn't giving them honor. And he needed to either get in line under their authority, give them credit, or stop doing what he was doing. I mean, after all, the twelve, they had enough competition among themselves to be the greatest. They didn't need any outside competition. Hopefully you can see what's wrong with this mentality. The disciples, they weren't concerned that this guy was a false teacher or a wolf in sheep's clothing. They just simply cared that he wasn't giving them credit and recognition. It's merely another expression of their pride. They wanted to preserve their power and prestige and status as the ones closest to the Lord, as if they had a copyright on serving the Lord. But Jesus responds, verse 39, But Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. The basic message Jesus gives is this guy, he's, he's on our team. You have the same Lord, the same enemy, so you should be cheering this guy on, lifting him up, not tearing him down and thwarting him out of pride. They were only concerned about their reputations, not the Lord's work. So Jesus teaches them a lesson on humility by correction. He corrects them. Now, real quick, let me give a a brief word of balance here because, you know, we know today a lot of people do a lot of crazy things in the name of Jesus, and they're not all true. And so listen, Jesus is not endorsing every person who claims to do some work in his name. Remember, Jesus himself said in Matthew 7.22 that many, not a few, but many people who call him Lord and they claim to cast out demons in his name, that's what he said, in the end they will be rejected from the kingdom and judged. Because in reality they were false believers with, false teachers with false works. So look, we know, we're still called to be discerning, to test all things, of course, Also, when Jesus says, he who is not against us is for us, he's not giving an absolute standard, like all you have to do to be saved is not oppose the Lord. That's not what he means. 
In fact, Jesus elsewhere gave a corresponding statement when he said, he who is not with us is against us. Just think about that standard. If you're not with us, you're against us. The key to making sense of all this is to remember that Jesus was making these statements in a culture of open hostility to the things of the Lord. And this applied to the early church. It was a time of intense hatred for the things of the Lord. In that kind of environment, there's no middle ground. When the culture hates Christianity or God or Christ or you name it, there's no middle ground. The lines of allegiance are very clear. You're either for the Lord receiving the hatred or you're against the Lord giving the hatred. But there's no middle ground. In America, that, that's not the case today. We're not familiar with that. For now, at least. There's no heavy persecution, so there's plenty of fence-sitters. People, they're very friendly with Jesus, sure, but they don't really follow. And if the culture changed and Christians were being thrown in jail again, well, then you would very quickly start to see who's really for and against. Who really follows? You'll find out. But just understand, this is the culture that Jesus was speaking in. And here you've got this man, and he's not against the Lord. He's not against him. In fact, he's for him. He is doing a work in his name in a, in a culture of hostility. So this identified him as an ally. And so they should support him, not oppose him. And the bottom line, Jesus is saying that Christians, you've got the same great enemy in Satan. You've got the same great opponent in the world. The last thing you need is to worry about infighting due to pride. Rather, you're all children of God and you have the same Lord. So humility is called for where you are rejoicing at the spiritual successes of others, even if they're not part of your tradition. Listen, the truth matters. We should be pursuing the truth. And there's only one truth. We should all desire to find it. But we're fallen sinners. Even saved, we're still fallen sinners. And there were there will be differences. There will be other denominations, other traditions, other styles, stuff like that. But if you have others and they they have the true gospel and they follow the true Lord, then we're on the same team. It's like we're different branches of the same company. We all have the same boss. All of the earnings go to him. I mean, we're on the same team. And rather than stepping on others and, and putting them down, we should celebrate their spiritual successes and support their efforts because they're just contributing to the same bottom line. Remember Ephesians 4. There's only one Lord and one church and one salvation. There's only one. Now we need to be discerning, but if others have the gospel right, then we're on the same team. They're our brothers and sisters, and we report to the same boss. When all is said and done, I think one of the reasons the disciples are so adamant about trying to be the greatest is because they wanted that glory. They wanted the reward. And you've got to be first to get the reward, right? You've got to be at the top of the ladder to get the reward. And the fear is that nice guys finish last. And if you're all meek and humble, you're going to miss out on all that reward and the glory, right? But Jesus finishes off. And, and with God as the judge, that's, that's actually not the case. God gives grace to the humble. Let's finish this off. Just briefly look at verse 41. He says one more thing. He says, Forever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ. Truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. 
This verse seems to imply that Jesus was foreseeing a time when Christians would be heavily persecuted, so much so that a cold cup of water would be hard to come by. But whoever helps such a one because of their allegiance to Christ is showing themselves to be allied to Christ, to be favorable to Christ. It's like in World War II. You're a German living in Germany, and you show help and kindness to Jews. Well, you're pretty much sealing your fate as an opponent of the Nazi party, aren't you? Actions speak louder than words. And helping others, even like something like giving someone a, a cup of water in a time of great need because of their allegiance to Christ, that's showing that you fear their Lord, you serve their same Lord. And in that, Jesus says, you won't lose your reward. At the right time, God will humble the exalted. Or, let me reverse that. He will exalt the humble. All those who were humble before them, he will lift up. Our low position will not last forever. This is most certainly true of Jesus. Remember we read Philippians 2, which speaks of his great humility and enduring the cross. He, he lowered himself to the, to the supreme in his humility on the cross. But that was not going to last forever. He was going to be exalted and verse 9 continues in Philippians 2, which says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And at that name every knee will bow and confess him as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus displayed the truest humility in not serving himself but the Lord. And in that God, God exalted him. And God promises to do the same for us. This is an important lesson to learn. Humility, it's part of our discipleship. Following Jesus, it's not about your will being done. It's about his will being done. It's not about you serving yourself and your interests. You serve him and his interests. And that includes serving others. To follow him, you've got to take on a low position, like a child, like a servant, and, and serve others. It takes humility. But God, he sees this. He regards this. He, he even rewards this. It pleases him. It shows we, we really trust him. And when the time is right, all of those who are his children and follow him in humility, when the time is right, he will lift them up. He will exalt them. So I want to finish by reminding you the example of Peter. He's a good lesson as well. Because during these days, we see Peter at the height of his pride. He's so proud. He's you know rebuking Jesus He's claiming to be the greatest on several occasions. Remember at the, said, at the beginning we said there are two ways that you can learn humility. The easy way and the hard way. And Peter definitely didn't learn the easy way. He was not learning from all of this instruction by Jesus. He learned the hard way. He had to be humbled. Before the death of Jesus, you remember Peter in pride, he claimed he was the, he was the most faithful disciple. He would rather die than deny Jesus. He was so strong, but as it turns out, he was not as strong as he thought. And in the end, he denied Jesus three times. And this event, this, this fall, crushed Peter. It broke him. He was humiliated. But this was the best thing that ever happened to him. Because as the Lord Jesus restored him in love, Peter was finally able to follow the Lord as a disciple with a real humility. And stop being so concerned about himself, he can finally get busy with the business of serving others and serving the Lord. 
And Peter learned this lesson so much that later in life, as he writes First Peter, he's overflowing with humility and he's passing it on. And remember this verse, First Peter 5, 5 and 6? He says to us, all of you, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble. He says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. And this is what it's all about. If pride opposes God, then humility recognizes him. If pride prevents salvation, then humility facilitates it. So in trust and faith, you too need to humble yourself under God's mighty hand. You know he cares for you. And in this, you will be enabled to truly follow the Lord as well. And when the time is right, he too will lift you up and bring you to glory. And with that, let's pray. Lord, you are the Lord of glory, the King of kings. Like Nebuchadnezzar, who learned after the fact, we, we now confess that the kingdom and the glory and the power and the honor belongs to you. You are the God of the universe, the creator, and the redeemer, the sustainer. All praise rightly belongs to you, Lord. And apart from you, we're, we're nothing. We have nothing of ourselves, no life, no breath, no mind, no wealth, nothing. You have given us everything, and, and to, in this you deserve the glory. I pray we are a humble people before you, humbled most of all by what you did to redeem us in sending your son Christ to die on the cross for us. In this, he saved us, and in this, he left us the ultimate example of what a selfless, sacrificial service looks like. Lord, this is the humility that pleases you. If pride opposes you, then this humility delights you because we are trusting you, we are following you, and we are worried about others, just like the Lord Jesus showed us. Teach us humility. I hope the easy way that we can learn in wisdom from others, from Christ, from this passage in Mark, we can learn to regard others as more important than ourselves, to look out for their interests. But if need be, Lord, this is so important that I pray that you teach us the hard way. If we need to be humbled, then humble us. Because this brings us to the place where we can finally know and serve you, and that is our desire. We know you you care for us, and we look forward to the day that you do exalt us, not because we deserve it, but even that is to your glory. And so we will sing your praises for all eternity as the God who has done everything for us. We give you the praise and we do that now as we close. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.